Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we've been reading through the book of Genesis. And today, we're going to start in chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to put it up on the screen. But I'm going to give you a little warning today. We're not going to stay in just Genesis. We're going to jump around a little bit to the New Testament because Paul has a habit of using some of the stories we're reading about to help us contextualize and understand the principles that he is showing us. So we're going to be going to Galatians and a couple other places So put your finger in Genesis, we're going to read through, but as we switch around, we're going to be jumping around, Um, but I just want to remind you, um, we are recording this message, I'll put it up online as well as my notes, if you find it difficult to to follow along or if you want to listen to it later. So let's start today in Genesis chapter 21, I'm going to start in verse 1, we're going to read through 14. The first 14 verses are split, um, seven verses about um, this kid named Isaac and then seven verses about Abraham's other son named Ishmael. So we're going to look at that parallel for a moment. So Genesis chapter 21, verse 1 says this. So the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, what did the Lord promise two chapters ago? He promised that she was going to have a child at the ripe old age of 90. So she laughed. God said, it's going to happen anyway. And she conceived... Verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me because everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Let's go to verse 8. And the child grew, so Isaac was growing up and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Isaac was weaned, the, uh, if you look um, in the life of Samuel, around Kings, uh, in uh, the book of Samuel and book of Kings, it seems to uh, Jewish tradition that kids were weaned probably around two or three years old. So Isaac is around two or three years old. Ishmael is considerably older than that. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, so Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Other translations say mocking. So Abraham wanted to throw a party for his son Isaac, and Ishmael was mocking Isaac, laughing at him at the party. So she said to Abraham, Sarah said this, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham, as you can imagine, because it was his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman, Hagar. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation out of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar. And putting it on her shoulder along with the child, he sent her away. And as she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So the first seven verses, we meet Isaac. And in the next seven verses, 8 through 14, we meet Ishmael. And in 14 verses, we find that there is a conflict brewing in the house among the boys. This is worse than typical just brother behavior about who, loves mom, mom, who does mom love best. This is typical um, behavior of someone who was uh, born um, in one area, the Abraham's um, refusal to obey God's timing, and he uh, had a child with Hagar, and that was Ishmael, and then you, he had a child with his wife and named Isaac, and Isaac and Ishmael, they're growing up, and the moms are starting to have a little conflict about who's going to be the actual heir. This strife and this conflict um, culminates in Sarah's decision to kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. That's how she's going to decide, that that's how we're going to reconcile this. We're not going to have a parent-teacher conference. We're going to sit down and talk through it. We're just going to kick somebody out of the house. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it seems really harsh. Like, that's the way we problem solve. We just make things disappear. And if that's the only way you, we read this verse, it's, it's one of the verses that you would lump into that category of just like really difficult Old Testament stuff that you don't understand. But luckily, that's not where we have to leave it. Because Paul gives us some context on how we're supposed to think about this situation in the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to jump over to Galatians chapter 4, verses 28 through 31. And what Paul does in Galatians is he uses this situation to help us understand a physical and a spiritual conflict that Christians are introduced to when they get saved. Okay? So this is what he's saying. Galatians 4, 28-31. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now what Paul is doing in Galatians chapter 4 that then continues into 5 is he's using this story that we just read to help us understand a spiritual principle about not trying to let two things that are opposite of each other live in the same home like they have the same rights. You follow In four, he uses this story to illustrate the difference between living under the law of Moses and living under the grace of Christ. And he's talking to these Jewish believers who have now come to Christ and think that in order to obey Christ, we have to keep the law of Moses. And Paul is saying that Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. And if you accept him by faith, all of those things that were required under the law have now been fulfilled and they're put on you through grace in Christ. He takes that that concept of living under the law, almost like inheriting this worldly idea um, of Ishmael, and and what Christ did as inheriting something new uh, through the Spirit, and he takes that idea with the law and and Jesus, and he extends it all the way into Galatians 5, and this is where it starts becoming familiar because he gives us that illustration of walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. 
You familiar with that? In Galatians 5, where he talks about walking in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. This idea that as Christians, there is a constant war inside your heart between what is born and what is born again. You follow? When you come to Christ, you bring that entire baggage all of the stuff that you, you've had, your entire, everything you've been born into, everything that you've learned about this world, your way of, of rationalizing things and, and problem solving and talking and treating people around you, you bring all of that to you and Christ says, you have now been born again. And I'm not going to take this old thing and try and make it new. We're going to put that in the ground and I'm going to give you something completely new and fresh which is important because many Christians think that what Christ is doing is trying to make a better version of you, but that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's trying to make you an accurate reflection of him. He's trying to put you, the flesh, your old desires, your old selfishness in the grave, buried, sin, it's, it's, it's put down in the grave. It is, it is cast away. It is cast out like Ishmael was cast out so that you can inherit the new thing that is the promise of God through Christ. That is the illustration we get. This battle between the flesh and the spirit is really a battle between your ways and God's ways. The goal is not to try and find a way for both of the brothers to live together the brothers being your flesh and this new thing that God has made you as a new creature in him. To not try and say, okay, in order to follow Christ, I can keep some of these old ways of thinking or this old way of doing things because this is, this is how I was born. Well, if that was a good enough reason for you to hold on to your old stuff, then Christ would have never told you to be born again. You have to be born again because the way you were born is broken. You have to be born again into God's kingdom so that these new things can come to life and you can be an accurate reflection of what is God's kingdom and not this earthly kingdom. So the goal, according to Paul, when we read these verses, is to not get the focus on how Abraham had to cast out his mistake and the physical people that were at play here. What we're supposed to do is take this principle of what he's doing and apply it to what we're supposed to be doing as Christians following Christ. You cannot continue to let your old nature and your old way of doing things and your old habits have a say at the dinner table of your heart. The only way to grow and mature in Christ is to take the old you and cast it out so that the new, born again in Christ, you can inherit the promises of God's kingdom. You follow? This is what he's trying to tell us through this story. So, this is the warning. Like, this is, the encouragement is cast out the flesh, but the warning is that if you don't, you're gonna live the rest of your life in strife. You're going to spend the rest of your life in turmoil, wrestling with yourself, constantly saying, I don't understand why I can't get past this. You're going to come up on 40 years old and say, I don't understand why I'm not further along. This is why. Because you refused to cast out the thing that is at odds with God's kingdom. You follow? All right, let's go to Genesis 22, verse 15. 
So the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Oh, I think I jumped too far. Oof, that's what happens when you put the wrong verse in your notes. So this is Genesis 21, 15. It's probably going to be wrong on the screen because I wrote it down wrong. So Genesis 21, 15, if you've got your Bibles, my apologies if it's not right on the screen. So she gets, Hagar gets cast out, and when she goes out into the wilderness, when the water is gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, and then she went and sat down opposite him in a good way off about the uh, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she left up her voice, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. So lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And the God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. This is Ishmael. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So Hagar was cast out of Abraham's home. But even though she was cast out, we see God caring for her. He protected her, he provided for her, he prospered her, and he did to Ishmael too. Now the question I have, if we're reading the illustration of, okay, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to cast Ishmael out, that's the spiritual sense. The actual physical sense is that these, these were legitimate people. What happened to these people? If this kid was a descendant of Abraham, what happened to them? God shows up and he cares for this lady and her son in person. And the question I have is, why did he do this? Ishmael was not the promised son. Ishmael was a byproduct of Abraham's mistake, but he was still a kid. Hagar was still an image bearer of God. So what does God do when these two are kicked out? He steps in, he takes care of them. And what we see is this pattern, this character of God, showing itself continually all throughout Scripture. The reason why is because God has always cared for the outsiders, and in caring for the outsiders, He's showing us how we're supposed to think about outsiders. God cares for those who are considered socially on the outside. He cares for them. He cares for them, and He expects anyone who follows Him to do the same thing. I care for the outsiders. Why don't you care for the outsiders? And he puts this all throughout Scripture, Psalm 146, 9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, and he thwarts the way of the wicked. In Exodus 23, 9, he told the children of Israel, you shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger since you were also strangers in the land of Egypt. And then Jesus in Luke 10 gives us the story of the, great, uh, the, the Good Samaritan, which at the very end, he turns after teaching the story of the, great, the Good Samaritan, he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, which one of these guys in the story I just told you do you think acted like a neighbor? And they said, well, I guess it was the guy who didn't have any religious affiliations. 
He was the one who treated the person who was different than him as a neighbor, and he responds, Jesus responds, we'll go and do likewise. The point being that God's family is filled with people who used to be outsiders. According to 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Ephesians 5, 8, you, every one of you in here that calls yourself a Christian, was considered at one time an outsider. You were not part of God's family. You were on the outside. You had no connections. Even the connections that you had through family lineage to people here on earth or because you like the same sports team as some people, all of those connections, as loose as they were, have no real sense of connection outside of the connection that you get in the family of God. And so from God's perspective, everybody who's born is born an outsider. And because he loved you, he brought you into his family, he adopted you in, and so you should, uh, now that you're a part of God's family, should never lose that sense of what it was like to once be an outsider. Look, you can be in this world the kind of person who likes to draw lines in the sand and say, well, I'm a part of the in-group, and everybody who's on the outside, if they want to just get on board, then you just come over here to my side. Or you can be the kind of person who remembers what it was like being on the outside, seeing everybody have family and connection and love, and wishing you had that, and Christ scooping you up and saving you and loving you, and in compassion, stepping over to those who are on the outside and loving them in the way that God does that to His people who are on the outside. Are you following? There is precedent in Scripture for how we're supposed to think and talk and treat people whose society says is on the outside. And it has nothing to do with shouting your fist or carrying a sign or burning buildings down or screaming at people or putting posts on Facebook that you know are controversial. It has everything to do with sitting down across the table from somebody who is on the outside and in a loving way having a conversation that communicates to them the value that they have in being an image bearer of God. Every human who has ever been born was created in God's image. It doesn't matter where they're from or the color of their skin or the the, the, what language they speak or how much money is in their account or what side of town they live on or where they went to high school. Everybody who's ever been born is an image bearer of God. And what we're taught in Scripture as people of God is to speak and live and treat and share and talk to people with that understanding. You follow? Okay. Genesis 21 finishes up this uh, concept of, of um, uh, Abraham with just kind of like this little story of uh, one of the kings of the Philistines. So the land where Abraham moved into, Cana, was controlled by multiple different clans, right? Like Philistine clans and um, Canaanite clans. And so he's really the only person in this area who's confessing and believing in this one God. He's living in such a way that the people around him come to him and say, hey, Abraham, we see something different about your life, so um, we want to make a covenant with you. 
Because we, we see that the God you serve is the kind of guy who like rains fire down out of heaven on cities for being wicked. So maybe we could like get on the same page with you and sign an agreement, some kind of treaty so that kind of stuff doesn't happen to us. So this king, this is what the end of 21, 22 through 34 is about. Abraham talks with this king named Abimelech. And Abimelech comes to him and says, hey, we want to sign a treaty so essentially uh, we can be on good terms with you because we don't want to be on the opposite side of God's uh, hand of wrath. I think the, the big takeaway here is that living in a land where people have forsaken God, Abraham's choice in the way he lived spoke so loudly that the people who wanted nothing to do with God came to him in order to establish covenants with him because they saw the impact that God had in his life because of the obedience he walked in. And if there was ever a message that was important for us today, it's that, that we live in a godless culture. We live in a culture where people want nothing to do with God. They want to erase him from every corner of existence, right down to the, to the biological level of God establishing, all right, my creation's only got two different ways of being, a male and a female. That's it. Just two ways. Culture wants to say, I want to erase that concept and get God out of all the way down. We don't even have those. We don't even need two genders. We can have many as you want. We can be as fluid as you want. They want to erase every ounce of every ounce of God's fingerprint in every corner of our culture. That's the world that we live in. And if we ever wanted to know what to do in a world like that, we can look at Abraham because he chose to walk in obedience in such a way that made such an impact on the people around him. The people who said, I don't believe in your God came to him and said, hey, can we establish a friendship? Because while I don't believe in your God, I can see the impact that he has in your life. So the question from that section of verses is, does your faith have a similar impact as Abraham's? Is the way that you're living enough for non-believers to see God impacting your life and want to establish a relationship because while they can't put a finger on it, they know that something is different about your life? Now, now let's go to Genesis 22. So Genesis 22 is a, a section of Scripture that's um, hard for us to kind of read and swallow and work through because this is the, most of you guys are familiar, this is the sacrifice of Isaac. This is a painful section of Scripture, but hopefully as we read through it, some things will um, be illuminated about why this is in here. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. All right? So dad's in here. God comes to you and says, I want you to take your son, and I want you to perform a human sacrifice you feel that weight? That's what's lost if we read this too quickly. The ask here, that's the heaviness. God comes to you and he says, I want you to take your child 
and I want you to kill your child as a sacrifice to me. What is Abraham's response? Verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and went to the place in which God had told him. And on the third day, it's important. All these little details are really important. We're going to come back to them. He takes two servants with him. On the third day, this happens. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come back to you. That's an interesting choice of words, Abraham. Because the command is to go to the other mountain over there and sacrifice your son. So technically, you wouldn't be coming back with him. So it seems like Abraham is in on something that we're not in on. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So his son Isaac has now got a pile of wood on his back. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both, both of them went together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. Now, some modern depictions of this show Isaac as like a little kid, like maybe he's like six or seven or eight or nine. Most theologians believe that he was probably in his teens, early 20s. To be old enough to be able to carry the wood on his back and just trying to date some of these situations, this was not a little kid. This was a young man willingly obeying his father's command to go make a sacrifice. And so, verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, who we know, we've already discussed, this was probably Jesus, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that your fear, that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it has said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Okay, now, in this chapter, God tests Abraham. And when you read this too quickly, it's easy to assume that the reason why God needs to test Abraham is so that God can find out what's in Abraham's heart. 
I'm testing you so that I can get some information that I don't have. The problem with that is that when you read the entirety of Scripture, you don't walk away with the understanding that there's anything that God doesn't know. God knows everything. God knew what was in Abraham's heart. So God's not testing Abraham because he needs something revealed. He needs to know something. And I would argue that the test is not even so that Abraham could find some information out because Abraham has already left his home. He's already obeyed God in having this child. And the way he's talking, he seems to be in on what's going on to the point where he realizes that even if he does take his son's life, God's going to intervene in some way, and him and his boy are coming back somehow. So it doesn't seem like this test needs to be um, uh, performed so that God learns something or that Abraham learns something. So what is the test for? The test is meant to reveal not something to God and to Abraham. The test is meant to reveal something to Israel and ultimately the world. This is designed to set the stage, to foreshadow something much larger coming that will involve a father who is going to willingly sacrifice his son. And it will include a lot of nuances here. The shadowing here of what's to come, which is ultimately Christ. In Christ's situation, it's funny, you see Isaac carrying the wood on his back, and what does Christ carry down to Golgotha? A cross made of wood on his back. In this story of Genesis 22, you've got two of Abraham's servants who are coming alongside of them, and at the cross, you've got two thieves on either side of Jesus hanging on the cross. Isaac was obedient to his father. You see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ praying, not my will, but yours be done. And finally, probably one of the biggest clinchers here is the way that it's described that after three days, so Abraham hears the word that his son is going to be sacrificed, and essentially his son, because Abraham chooses to to obey, the moment Abraham gets the command to take your son's life, Essentially, Isaac is a dead man. From the moment that God gives the command and Abraham says, yes, I will obey, from that moment in history, Isaac is essentially a dead man. And then three days later, a ram appears. and It's almost like Abraham gets his son back three days later. Christ is crucified. And three days later, he comes back from the dead. Now, some of you are like, well, that last one's a little bit of a stretch. Why well, I didn't make that one up. I got it from Hebrews. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he received the promises was an act, an offering up of the son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's the writer of Hebrews. That's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying from the moment that Abraham got the command and chose to obey, Isaac is essentially a dead man. And then three days later, he receives his son back. That's the same concept that God is, he, he, was, he was casting forward in, 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 in future of what Christ was going to do. And he, the writer of Hebrews also gives us another piece of information. He considered that God was able to even raise him back from the dead. 
That's what Abraham knew. That's why Abraham looks at his servants and says, we're going to go worship, and then we're going to come back. Because deep down in his heart, Abraham knew that if he took his son's life, God would just raise him back from the dead. Why did he know that? Because he knew that God promised a thousand generations through this kid, and that wouldn't be possible if Abraham followed through and God didn't intervene. The point being from this story in Hebrews is that Abraham chose to obey God because he believed in resurrection power. That's what Hebrews tells us. Abraham had the courage to obey God because he believed that God had the power to bring people back from the dead. And that is important because our belief in resurrection power is also the thing that gives us the courage to obey God today. Now think about it, and I'll just use my, me as an example. I can follow Jesus even to the point of death with no regrets because I know that even if I die in obeying him, he'll bring me back to life. That's what he does. But there's a part of me who feels like, well, if I, if I obey Jesus, I'm going to miss out on stuff. I'm going to have regrets at the end of my life because requiring, following Jesus requires me to say no to this other thing. Well, I can have courage to follow Jesus without regrets because I know that this life is not all there is. I can miss out on stuff that my flesh wants in saying yes to Jesus because I know that one day I'm going to come back from the dead and live eternity with him, and I'm promised I'm not going to miss out on anything. So those of us who feel like you're young in your life, you feel like if I don't make some worldly decisions now and some mistakes now in my 20s and my 30s, I'm going to regret it in my 40s. As someone who's coming up in my 40s, I'm telling you, you're not going to regret any of it. Just don't do it. And spiritually speaking, eternity speaking, you're not going to miss out on anything at all because you're promised that what is coming is far greater than anything that you would sacrifice and compromise in here today. I can say no to temptations because I know that I will inherit a greater reward. I can say goodbye to my loved ones here on earth because I know that I'm going to see them again. I feel like as a whole, as Christians here in America, we unbelievably undervalue the weight of resurrection as part of our inheritance in Christ. We don't get it. Because our theology is built around this concept that one day we're going to die and then we'll float up to heaven and we'll get our wings or something, and then we'll just kind of float around in heaven, and then that's the end of it. That's it. That, that's not it. That's not what the Bible says is it. There's a whole book called Revelation that tells us that that's not it. What actually is it, and it's referenced in Thessalonians 2, is that sometime in the future, Jesus is going to come back from from heaven, he's going to appear on earth, and he's going to call all of the dead saints back to life. He's going to rapture the ones who are still alive, and in a twinkling of an eye, they're going to be transformed like he was. 
And what is going to happen is God is going to uh, erase sin and sickness and sorrow and evil and, and Satan. He's going to bind it up. He's going to cast it into the lake of fire. And he's going, God is going to establish a new kingdom on a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be resurrected in new bodies that are more like we were in the Garden of Eden and less like we see in, in cartoons and in pictures at the Christian bookstore. You follow? Look, the whole, all of this, every, oh, my eyes is dark, that's funny. Look, all of this revolves around this idea of resurrection. This is why Jesus constantly was telling the disciples, hey, hey, don't go tell anybody what I just told you. And he heals somebody, he's like, hey, 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 don't, don't, when you, don't, don't go tell anybody. You, you ever wonder, like, why is Jesus constantly telling people not to tell people about what he just did? Because he knew that early in his ministry, if he let these people and his disciples go and tell the world what the message was, they were going to mess up the message. They weren't ready. They hadn't learned the message. They needed three years to learn the message, and they needed to see him die and then come back from the dead to fully understand what the message is. What is the message? The message is death and resurrection. The message is not come to Christ and get a better life and get rich and have all these things that you've always wanted and have your heart, to, you know, to satisfy, your heart's desires. That's not the message. The message is all of this dead, into the grave, saying no to yourself, dying to the flesh, so you can be resurrected in something completely new and far greater than just a better version of you. This is why Jesus is standing there and he's like, hey, where's Thomas? Thomas wasn't here. He's having a hard time processing all this stuff. Cool, then I'll appear again later next week. Same time, same place. Thomas is there and he's like, hey, hey, Thomas, come here. Put your fingers in the holes in my hand. And Thomas is like, you know, I got it. You're here, I'm here, I see it. And Jesus is like, no, come and put your fingers in the holes of my, why did he do that? Because Jesus is trying to convince, and not convince, but help Thomas understand that what Christ did was not just like this concept, like resurrection is not just a theory. It's an actual thing that takes place. It is a coming back to life. And Jesus spent um, uh, like 40 days walking the earth, appearing to over 500 people in physical form to help us understand that what he did was not just a concept, it was a reality. When, when Lazarus was brought back from the dead, they had a party that night, and homeboy was sitting there eating chicken and having a meal, and people are dancing and partying. It wasn't just like the spirit of Lazarus is floating around, hanging out with everybody. No, it's, it's lit. We're giving high fives. We're hugging each other. We're loving you. We're kissing you. We're, 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 we're dancing together. This is what, what, what the promise is. Well, we say, oh God, we settle for so much less. We settle for like, well, it's just, it's a concept. Like really what it is, just like hell is this, this kind of idea of, of bad stuff. If you make some bad decisions and you're going to kind of live in hell. No, 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 no. Hell's a real place with real fire and real torment. And you really don't want to go there. And God is real. And what he does through his resurrection power is actually bring people back to life. Physically, and what we're promised in eternity is that that will never end. It's going to go forever. And Abraham knew this, and he understood it. And this is why he was willing to obey, because he had a lock on something that I think most of us don't understand, even though Jesus taught it and lived it and showed it with his life. There is a coming back. This is not all there is. But if you make the wrong choices here, 
If you refuse to walk in obedience here, you will not be spending eternity resting in His presence in a new heaven and a new earth. You will be spending eternity in a place that was originally only reserved for the angels who rejected God and rebelled against His kingdom. Now, as we finish today, there's another side to living by faith that a lot of us don't like talking about. When we talk about living by faith, we like saying, oh, this is the easy thing. We like, this is, this is you know, okay, well, coming to Christ is, you know, it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do because of this concept of understanding what death to yourself means. And I think that the best way to illustrate this is what happens to Abraham after he chose to obey God. This is Genesis 22, 19. I'm going to read three, three verses and we're going to start wrap, just wrapping up here. Genesis 22, 19. So Abraham returned with his young men. They rose and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now jump down to 23 in verse 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years without modern medicine. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah lived at Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So Abram went out to mourn for Sarah and to weep from her. After Abraham almost sacrificed his son, he went back and lived in Beersheba and Sarah lived in Hebron, and those towns are about 26 miles apart. You following me? Most theologians believe that after Abraham almost sacrificed his son, his wife chose to live apart. She left him. Now this reminds me of a teaching from Jesus about what it takes to be a disciple and how much it costs. Because what's sold as Christianity in this country and in most churches is just run down the altar and pray a prayer and not much has to change. There is nothing further from the truth when it comes to the teachings of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to end the service today reading Jesus' words about what it means to be a disciple. I'm not even going to offer any commentary. I'm going to read Jesus' words from Luke 14, verses 26 through 33, and I'm going to let Jesus have the final words. So when I finish this, we're going to close in prayer. But I want you to hear what Jesus says about what it takes to be a disciple of him. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to even complete it. Otherwise, when he lays the foundation, he's not able to finish it, and everyone who sees it begins to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war does not at least first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who's coming out with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet great far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace because he knows he's not going to win the war. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce, forsake, leave behind all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.